0: Because he he communicates in a way where he touches us holistically. He doesn't just appeal to the mind. He's also appealing to the heart. And Lewis, writing about that, says, And the first problem of life is how do you bring together the head and the heart? If we understand anything about the fall, the fall estranges us, not just from God, but also the fall estranges me from myself. I have a division between head and heart. How do I get these things back together? And and I think Lewis thinks story is really important in that process. Um, Story can help me even begin to see with the eye of the imagination what I've missed with my propositional understanding of things. Uh, Maybe if I want to say, is theology poetry, maybe the poetry begins to develop when my life starts to become... More story.
1: Welcome to Lesser Known Lewis, where two friends and C.S. Lewis fans explore his lesser known works. I'm Sean. And I'm Jordan. Join
2: us for season three on Metaphor and Myth, where Lewis's writings on language, imagination, and storytelling will help us come to see, know, and taste reality more deeply.
1: Well, welcome to another episode of Lesser Known Lewis. We are just glad that you're joining us today and now, wherever you're listening to, from your car or your workplace, um, sitting in front of your computer, wherever you might be. Today, Jordan and I have the pleasure of diving into the essay, Is Theology Poetry? Uh, But we're not alone. We've got uh, three people in the conversation today. We also have Dr. Jerry Root. Jerry, thank you so much for joining us. You have written a number of different um, books on Lewis and lectured all over the world on C.S. Lewis, and we are just delighted to have you um, contributing to our conversation today.
0: Thank you. It's a delight to be here. I'm always impressed with people whose minds are bright and are also interested in Lewis and interested not only in understanding him, but applying him to the kinds of things we face
1: day after day. Fantastic.
2: Okay, so this is editor Jordan breaking in from the future here, because usually at this point we ask our guests to introduce themselves and then give us a lesser known Lewis recommendation. And we did that with Jerry as well. And his answer was so rich and wonderful. And he told us about why he loves Lewis and how Lewis has fit into his life that I actually wanted to take that part out and put it in a bonus episode we're going to do in the near future where that's kind of the topic. And so I thought I'm going to save this because it's just so good and you'll get to hear it eventually. But for now, let me just introduce to you our guest for today's episode, Dr. Jerry Root. He is a world-renowned speaker and author, uh, an author of seven C.S. Lewis books. He is the professor of evangelism emeritus at Wheaton College, a husband to Claudia, father of four, and grandfather of many more. So without further ado, Here's our conversation with Dr. Jerry Root.
1: As it pertains to is theology poetry, we'll just do a little introduction here to it for those of you who haven't read it yet. Uh, it was it was published in 1944, and and it was and it was an address. Um, the The Oxford Socratic Club asked the question to Lewis, and and he kind of opens up the essay on um, on some of the underlying beliefs and in, in asking a question like that, and he says, you know what. um, uh, is, this, is this question being asked with the, the thought in mind to dismiss Christian belief or belittle it? Um, or, or asking maybe another way, is theology merely poetry, as if that, that would undermine Christian truth in some way? And that's where he begins his thought and, and in typical Lewis manner um, kind of builds a little citadel around that and, and continues to add to it and renovate the idea coming back and forth to it. Um, Jordan, where does it go from there? Well, maybe before I would
2: continue, um, this might be a good opportunity for us to understand what the Oxford Socratic Club was, just because uh, I think we've encountered it in another essay that we've done by Lewis, where he wrote to read this one to the Oxford Socratic Club. And I know there's probably a couple coming up where that's the case, but we've got someone here who can do a better job letting us know, uh, letting our listener know what the Oxford Socratic Club was. Jerry, could you maybe just briefly fill us in on what that was and and maybe then take it from there?
0: The Oxford Socratic Club was a club on campus or campus. They've got about 40 campuses um, at Oxford University, where one week there would be a Christian who would read a paper and the non-Christians would respond. The next week, a non-Christian would read a paper and the Christians would respond. And it was to keep Christianity in the lively debate of the of the academic world and some of the smartest thinkers brightest thinkers in England believers and unbelievers were invited to address the Socratic club my doctoral supervisor was the vice president of the Socratic club and and then when lewis went to cambridge he became the president of it basil mitchell he was an eminent philosopher at oriel college and um, so anyway that's that's where lewis was uh, giving this address but like any, any thesis, right, you begin mm-hmm. with the posed question, is theology poetry? <laughs> and Lewis, Lewis is trying to be respectful of them. Every once in a while, I'll speak at some, something and somebody will say, well, what do you think Lewis would say today about this topic? And I say, nobody can answer that question. You end up using the author as a ventriloquist uses his dummy and you speak your own ideas through the dummy, you know. I said, but you can sometimes find out something Lewis already said that has relevant application to today. But Lewis, when he is given this topic as theology poetry, he moves it away to something else. If Mm. theology is poetry, he writes, it's not very good poetry. And I and I think I think this bleeds into other things that he's written other places about the nature of language itself, whether it be something like the abolition of man, uh, or something like is uh, um, where 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 he he writes the language of religion and so on. When you talk about language itself, um, you. To make any kind of true statement or significant statement, there has to be a reality that affirms the claim. Truth is not reality. Truth is what I think about reality when I think accurately about it. If I say this is a pen, that's a true statement because there's a reality that supports a claim. If I say this is an elephant, that's false. There's no elephant there. Elephants exist. This isn't one. But what I did when I said this is a pen, uh, the word pen itself is a symbol. Um, the symbol comes from two Greek words, soon, with, and ballet, or below, to cast, to throw something. So you throw two things together. And, and I take the word pen, which is just a symbol, to represent this, which is an object. And consequently, I could talk about one of these, whether I have it present or not. Now, if I say the word pen, you may think of a ballpoint pen, a fountain pen, a quill pen, or something like that, but still you have in your mind a writing instrument. If I deny reality, then I lose the capacity to have any meaning for the symbols. And once I have a community community where we can communicate the thing that brings us together is a common language and all of a sudden the use of words becomes arbitrary and the realities that support those words become unimportant you have anarchy of thought and you have the destruction of a society Lewis writes about that in the abolition of man he develops it also in his in his uh talk about poetry but a work of fiction uh that hideous strength and in the language of religion when he talks about uh the language of religion he's talking about poetic language there and it clarifies some of our understanding of his theology poetry scientific language seeks to quantify um, to think of the measurable the the mere measurable aspects whereas poetry is trying to help us not be told how we should feel, but describe something in such a way that the description is evocative and the feelings just respond. Um, Justice is to render to a thing it's due. If I see the thing well depicted in poetry, then all of a sudden um, my heart responds with the feelings that are just or sentiments that are proper. So there in that sense, um, uh, theology to the degree that it can do the poetic kind of work that you get in some of the poetic books of the Bible, for example, the Psalms, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, stuff like that. It can do some of that work. It's evocative, but theological statements themselves, um, they're propositional um, and they, they, they may even tell us how we should feel, but it's not doing the kind of work a poet would be doing when they write poetry.
2: What I love about this essay is that he, he takes a couple lines of thought there to respond um, to the question. And I think he sees the question as, as uh, an accusation. Is theology merely poetry? As a way to belittle Christian belief, and he explores whether whether that means is it do we just believe it because it's imaginatively appealing, or do we just believe it um, because it's mythic and we we see things in mythic ways, or is it or the question how could we believe metaphors Uh, like you brought up symbols because theology involves talking in these ways, talking in language that involves symbols. And so it's really a question, it's a question of how do we know? It's an epistemological question. Um, And so that's where we're going in this whole season of ours with more essays from Lewis on um, myth and metaphor and epistemology. But uh, Jerry, maybe what we could ask.
0: Just real quick though, when I use the word symbol, Mm symbol, I, I wasn't using it as a synonym for metaphor. Oh, okay. I was using it as a as a depiction of what a word does. Mm. A word is a symbol. Mm-hmm. The word is not the thing itself. The word pen is not the pen.
2: Right. Yeah.
0: The, there's a, there, a matter of fact, I got to show you this. You guys know this already.
2: The Magritte yeah. <laughs> painting, this is not a pipe. Hey everyone, this is Editor Jordan breaking in again. Just to say that here, Jerry held up his phone case, which on the back of it, he has a picture of a René Magritte painting, which is called The Treachery of Images. It's also known as This Is Not a Pipe, and it's just a painting of a pipe, and underneath are the words, This Is Not a Pipe, in French. Just so you know what we're all looking at while Jerry talks about it. I'll put a link to it in the show notes.
0: This is not a pipe what does he mean by that it's a it's a picture of a pipe and that's different than the pipe itself Mm -hmm. it is a painting of a pipe not a pipe and so consequently then this the precision of the symbol to represent whatever it's representing is important that's itself Mm -hmm. not a metaphor metaphor is when there's a a comparison where the comparison is implicit you know Um, if I, if one day when we were eating dinner at our house, when our kids were young, there was a car that went by the house really fast. And I said, wow, that car just flew by. My son said, dad flew by, flew by the car flew by. Yeah. And I said, Jeremy, that's a metaphor. That's Mm -hmm. when you have a comparison. The car doesn't fly, but have you ever seen a car? I mean, a bird fly slow. And he said, no. And I said, so therefore, when I say the car flew by, I was giving a, a depiction that the car was going fast. So, so that's the use of the metaphor um, as, as, as distinct from other, other forms of speech. So I don't know. I, I just feel like I should make that clarification.
2: Yeah, no, that's helpful. I think I had just just seen them as the same thing. Um, maybe what would be the importance for Christians to learn about metaphor and myth, um, for the sake of their Christian lives?
0: Well, well, part of it is just the enjoyment of a good story. I don't think there's anything wrong with saying this, this is, this is really good. And I, I don't know about you guys. I've been in art museums before where I'll walk by and every art painting, whatever in the museum, somebody was captured by it. It was valued. That's why it's on the wall. But I've been through art museums where yeah. all of a sudden I've come to a work of art and I've just been blown away by it. And I'll stand in front of it for half hour, just drinking it in. And I, I've had that sort of thing happen many times. Sometimes a good story just delights the heart and the soul. And if it's well told and well depicted and and we come to it, L- L- Lewis said this in an essay. It was later published as an essay, but it was a lecture he gave at Oxford University in the 1930s. He said to the students in the, in the English faculty, we have fulfilled our whole duty to you if we can help you see some given track of reality. If we can help you see something in the text that is there, not you projecting on the text what you want it to be. He writes in Experiment and Criticism, we have two kinds of readers. Those who use literature, they're utilitarian in their use, or those who receive literature and it begins to transform them. And it enlarges their world because they see things better and bigger. So now when you talk about how is this helpful in a person, say, in their own Christian life or whatnot, there's this idea when we deny reality, uh, we may be denying it, not because we're uninformed, but because we have compromised our life morally. And if we do something wrong, we come to a mystical moment where we can either um, repent of that wrong or to live with ourselves. We rationalize and justify the wrong, and it leads to a kind of moral blindness. It's what Aristotle and the Nicomachean Ethics called akrasia or akrasia. Akrasia is the Greek word for command. I put the alpha negation on it. I lose command of my moral life when I start rationalizing and justifying these things. And Lewis says that in fact, we can have all kinds of rationalizations set up that cover our commitment to anything that would be Christian. He, he, he says in, in uh, his literary critical work on... Um, Milton, continued disobedience to conscience makes conscience blind. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul says, I suppress the truth in my unrighteousness. So if I've got this, this veneer over my soul, this shell over my soul, that's not going to let anything get in because I have, I have compromised. Lewis says it's like, it's like uh, we have these watchful dragons who are in front of our soul that are gonna deflect anything that's coming in. And Lewis asked the question, how do I get past the watchful dragons? And he said, sometimes story gets past the watchful dragons. Uh, The depictions, the metaphors, the similes, the analogies, and, and, and the stories themselves. Even when Lewis writes mere Christianity, he'll give a proposition, and with the proposition, he'll usually give some sort of imaginative depiction.
1: It is a pattern that uh, the more Lewis that I get exposed to, the more that I see that the thoughts that he's developing propositionally in his essays, and they're never and and his best thoughts are almost never even in the essays merely propositional. To now use the same play of words that he's asking here about theology and it being merely, um, merely poetic, but but uh, where he develops it explicitly and propositionally in his essays, and then almost enshrines it in his storytelling, much the way that you just described as a way of getting it past those dragons.
0: It's, it's, it's true, and it's not uncommon for him to write in a propositional treatment of something, a response also, an imaginative treat, treatment. So you have, you have his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, but then he also has The Pilgrim's Regress, which is a a fanciful, the only allegory he actually writes, a fanciful depiction of this, though he did the allegory before he did Surprised by Joy. But you have The Abolition of Man, and he then depicts what he's saying in that book in his novel, That Hideous Strength. He has The Four Loves, and then he depicts what he's written about in that book Until We Have Faces, a haunting book, actually, as he retells the myth of Cupid and Psyche. And, and sometimes in his essays too, Lewis will have something in an essay that then he'll depict in, in an imaginative work. And and I think it's helpful because he he communicates in a way where he touches us holistically. He doesn't just appeal to the mind; he's also appealing to the heart. And I think that's good. As a matter of fact in, in, in his literary critical work on uh, Charles Williams or theory and poetry he has this scene, Williams has this scene of uh, a Bedouin shepherd walking along with a stone in one hand and a shell in another. And he's trying to fit the stone in the shell. Uh, Lewis, I mean, Williams takes the image from Wordsworth's prelude. And Lewis writing about that says the stone represents reason. The shell represents the romantic longings of the heart. And the first problem of life is how do you fit the stone in the shell? How do you bring together the head and the heart? Why is this important? Well, if, if we understand anything about the fall, the fall estranges us, not just from God. And if the fall is, if anything, an anarchistic decision where I will assert my will against reality, against God, and even against others. The fall is anarchistic then too. It estranges me from others, but also the fall estranges me from myself. I have a division between head and heart. I have a division, especially if I rationalize the issues of, of my moral will going false and, and so on. Um, how do I get these things back together? And, and I think Lewis thinks story is really important in that process. Um, Story can help me even begin to see with the eye of the imagination what I've missed with my propositional understanding of things, that there really is a need for the cultivation of virtue. That's why in in, in education, it would be important to read these great stories so that I discover something about courage, courage beyond my own. I discover about temperance, temperance beyond my own, justice, justice beyond my own, that I might then learn um, at least the vocabulary of courage, temperance, justice, and wisdom, the things that that make up virtue. And I can then live a more virtuous life. Uh, Maybe if I want to say is theology poetry, maybe the poetry begins to develop when my life starts to become more storied it becomes more full more robust and and Mm. and virtue begins to emerge so that when i come to the challenging moment where i'm going to have to decide between one or the other i at least have an understanding having been depicted for me how it works out better when you choose well at the end of the day than it does if you choose poorly
2: yeah i really like that that image from that charles williams story of the is it the rock and the shell and and the mind and the um not not the imagination but the longings of the heart
0: um lewis says that's the first problem in life how do you fit the stone and shell how do you how do you come back to a holistic understanding of life given that we're broken and fallen and so
2: on yeah and that was really his uh when those two things clicked for him was essentially his conversion or what led to his conversion.
0: Do you remember the first book he wrote after he converted? Pilgrim's Regress. And what's the subtitle?
2: Uh, I forget.
0: An Allegorical Apology for Christianity, Reason, and Romanticism. The whole book is the coming together of these two halves that have been
2: separated.
0: So it's brilliant.
2: Well, I wonder if then maybe this question is theology poetry is um, perhaps the accusation from some, and I think we still hear this accusation today, we still face this, which would be people saying, um, do Christians believe their theology, their truth, um, only because it appeals to the heart, despite the fact that they're assuming it has no um, rationale behind it, or it doesn't, maybe it doesn't match with the mind, but are Christians just giving in to what they believe because it feels good is maybe too uh, simple of a way to say it, but because it's romantically appealing, imaginatively appealing, it appeals to our hearts, so who
1: cares if it doesn't add up? Does that, is that maybe what the question is, or... If I can even add to that, I'd say the way that I see that same question dressed up in slightly different clothes is to suggest that faith emerges as a psychological crutch to fulfill a felt need in a person, and that is all that it is. Um, so like you said, yeah, is it is it just that it appeal This is the question, um, part of what Lewis explores in this essay, is does this only appeal to us for aesthetic qualities or it's or it's therapeutic qualities as maybe we could say it in the 21st century and how do we go beyond that
0: well i think that those people who think faith is merely a crutch have undersold what faith is i think it's more like an iron lung. <laughs> i can live without a crutch i can't live without an iron lung. and and so the issue is especially as i think about matters of faith if I am honest in my assessment of my condition, I'm going to recognize that I am also incapable of fixing what's broken in me. And I'm going to need something beyond. I can give you an example. I, I spoke at an Evensong service at Hartford college in Oxford. And after the service, I was invited to take high table with the faculty high table at Oxford, something else. You know, if, if you saw the Harry Potter movies, that's at Christchurch, the most spectacular of all the halls. But you have these long tables that run the length of the hall and then those are where the, that's where the students sit. Elevated about three tables is the high table where the faculty sit. Massive paintings of famous graduates and benefactors. Hartford has John Donne as one of its graduates, the poet and also Uh, William Tyndale, the Bible translator. And these paintings are looking down at you, I think, to make sure you use the right knife, fork and spoon, you know, and and everybody comes dressed in their academic uh, gowns. The meal begins with a Latin prayer, the wine pours freely, and you can cut the pretense with a knife. It's (laughs) It's not so bad if you don't take yourself too seriously, but a lot of people are tempted to take themselves too seriously. The chaplain introduces me as having spoken at the Evensong service, Latin prayer. I sit down, woman sitting across from me who taught history there said, so Jerry, why are you a Christian? She yells it out. So everybody has to pay attention to this conversation. Why are you a Christian? And I realized I could have entered into some philosophical or apologetic debate and discussion. But if I did that, I'd have probably ended up with indigestion at the end of the meal rather than making any progress in answering her question. And I looked at her and I gave her the honest answer. I said, I am a Christian because I'm aware of untold numbers of deficiencies in my life. I believe in the high ideal of love, but I've had sharp words with people I say I love most in the world. I believe in justice. But I know there have been times I've been unfair in my treatment, even of the well-meaning of somebody I've been engaged with. I am a Christian because I'm aware that I needed to know I was loved unconditionally and I could be forgiven. And I didn't have the power to set right what was broken in me. And she said, well, I could appreciate that, but that's just not my issue. And I said, I think I understand what you're saying. I didn't become a Christian until my first year of university. And I certainly didn't become perfect overnight. That took two or three weeks before that happened. And the whole faculty busted up in roaring laughter. And I said, your laughter just betrayed you. She said, what do you mean? Yeah. I said, well, you and I just met, so you couldn't know the specifics of my story that made that last sentence nonsense but you laughed at the nonsensical nature of it. So either your read of history or your read of your own heart has shown you nobody has it together. She looked at me and she said, you got me. I said, I'm not trying to get anybody, but let me ask you some questions. How do you get by yourself knowing what you know about your shortcomings? She said, well, I have faith in humanity. I said, well, let me ask you some questions about that. Have you ever been wounded by another human being before? She said, of course. I said, and have you ever wounded another human being before? She said, I suppose so. And and, and, And I said to her, how does this faith in humanity work when we live in a culture where we've wounded others and we've been wounded by others? And just then the man sitting next to her says, how does Christianity work? And this is where we move from mere crutch to iron lung. We start a discussion about grace and the nature of grace and the forgiveness of God and the love of God and the mercy of God. Something that we can think about these things, but we can't manufacture for ourselves that sense of being accepted, loved unconditionally, and being forgiven. It's an iron lung, not a crutch. I mean, there's some other things about this, too, you know, because sometimes Christianity gets poo-pooed. And while the people who are materialists or atheists or whatever are looking down about Christianity and not listening to what Christians are saying, and maybe Christians are obnoxious, too, and sometimes we've been off-putting because we haven't said, well, what needs to be said. But nevertheless, a lot of times people who are materialists and so on, they gravitate towards these things for hosts host of different reasons. One, they could just be caught up in the, in the vortex of a culture that's an echo chamber. You know, they did some research at the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College recently on Gen Z. And all these Gen Z people said they didn't want anything to do with Christianity because the hypocrites in the church and the church has failed here and there. And then they did follow up questions with them well, could you give us a specific case where you were hurt by the church? Not one could come up with a specific case. Then they'd say, well, do you know any Christians? Well, yeah, my grandmother. Well, what's she like? She's the sweetest person I know. And so consequently, that's just people echoing the, the echo chamber. They're in a culture where they're just hearing what their culture says. They're in a case of group think. I think that's going on in academic institutions across America, too, where we silence the voice of faith on the institution campus. And consequently, we're not even engaged with what people of faith are really saying.
2: Well, friends, next week, we'll be back with the second part of this episode on Is Theology Poetry? In the meantime, if you want to find out more about Jerry or find his books, I'll put links in the show notes, of course. If you are enjoying this episode and this season, I would ask if maybe you would take a second and leave a review or just leave us a rating on whatever podcast app you're listening on. And if you would like to support us on Patreon, you can find us there. Speaking of which, thanks to our two newest members to Patreon, Daniel and Jared, Thanks for signing up, guys. And thanks to David, our top-tier supporter, for helping us make these lesser-known works of Lewis more well-known. We'll be with you again next week.